right, well, let me pray before we jump into this. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, again, we, we say we need you. We're, we're unashamed to say that. And it's not just we say that we need you, God. We're praying that in confidence that you've said that you will always be with us, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. You've said not only that we need you, but that you will be with us and you are here for us. And so, God, we thank you for that. I pray you be worshiped as we continue to worship by studying the word. And God, I'm asking you would help all of us to hear what you would say to us through your word. God, would you guide my mouth and help me to teach in a way that is true to your word and is powered by your spirit and not by anything else. God, we're asking for you to work. God, I'm asking you to do what only you can do, which is to stir our hearts by your power and by nothing else. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we'll continue our series in James. So if you can open up to James chapter 2, as you're turning there, um, let me go ahead and state the obvious. Uh, I am a balding, middle-aged man. Um, That that was actually true, so I'm glad we're laughing this morning. And in middle age, there's a fun thing that starts to happen, Uh, especially around your waistline, uh, your your waist begins to increase. It begins to grow. And I got to be honest with you, there's been several times I've tried to address that with something that I affectionately call Operation Physical Jackhammer. Um, and I got to be honest, I've never finished Operation Physical Jackhammer. I've tried to make progress. And uh, to this date, I have started several times and never actually completed it. Um, I've never gotten the physique of a Greek god to give to my wife for a Christmas present or for her birthday. Not once, even though I've tried every year for over a decade now. Um, It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And I would love to tell you that I eat well and I exercise regularly. Um, I do eat well, but not like healthy. Uh, You already knew that. You can tell. Uh, It's obvious to everyone. Um, If I told you that I was always eating healthy foods and only eating salad and working out every day, would you believe me? No, actually, please don't answer that. (laughs) I I just changed my mind. As soon as I read that in my notes, I thought, what was I thinking by even asking? The one time everyone decides to answer the question out loud. Okay, I see. Okay, we're going to play mean today. I get it. Uh, No, listen, you see me every line. Online people, you don't count. The camera adds 30 to 40 pounds, I'm sure of it. But listen, I, 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 you're not going to lie to me. I, I can try to lie to myself, but there's some things that are present in my house that keep me from lying to myself about my goal for weight loss. Uh, my mirror, my belt, it has the same number of notches, and as those notches change in the wrong direction, I realize something is drastically wrong. I step on the scale, and no matter how many times my wife tries to convince me muscle weighs more than fat... I am sure, I am sure that I am not killing it in the areas of diet and exercise. Uh, I, I need to do better. I'm, please don't take that as, a, as something that I'm excusing there. But, but I know every time uh, I step on that scale and look in the mirror and trying to see the progress towards what I'm trying to have happen, there are things that are plain as day that are obvious that scream to me I'm not making the progress in that area I need to make. It's never fun to step on the scale in those moments. It's not fun to go to the doctor and say, can I take off more than just my shoes and empty my pockets when I step on that scale? Uh, This scale's broken. Apparently mine at home is 10 pounds lighter. I don't know what yours is. What's wrong with the doctor's office scale? I'm always trying to find out ways to make it not be as bad as it's supposed to be. But today in James chapter 2, 
uh, James is going to make all of us step on a spiritual scale. We're all going to have to step on it and see what that number comes out to. We're going to have to take a look in the spiritual mirror and honestly evaluate if we're making the progress in the faith that we are supposed to be making. And it can be uncomfortable. It can make me want to weasel my way out of it. It can make me give all sorts of excuses. I can say that the scale is broken or that the doctor was mean to me when he told me I needed to watch my weight. I can say all sorts of stuff, but the reality is the scale isn't lying. My belt is not lying. It's being honest with me. And today, I think as we look at James chapter 2, it's going to force us into an uncomfortable conversation. And I want to encourage you, be honest about this process that James is trying to take us through. I, I know it's uncomfortable. I know it doesn't feel good. But the scale isn't lying to us. So let's not play games this morning as we jump into it. I don't, I don't want you to, to be churchy. I don't want to play any games. I just want us to be really honest with ourselves with what the word is clearly telling us. Does that sound like a deal? All right. You were much weaker on that than if I uh, was gaining weight or not. So I know you listened because you answered that first question. So here's what we're doing. Before we jump into James chapter 2 in the middle, let me give you the background. Uh, here's the context. James is writing to... The church, that people that were in his church that have been scattered all over the place because of persecution. This is one of the earliest New Testament books that are written. I, I actually believe it's the first New Testament epistle that we have. And it's very early on in this early church. And this almost 100% Jewish church is scattered all over the place. And James is writing to them. And in the beginning of chapter 2, he starts to address this issue that they're actually showing favoritism to rich and powerful people in their church. And they're, they're not just showing favoritism to the rich, they're showing disrespect to the poor and to the needy. And James is, listen, it's all hands on deck for this conversation. He is not uh, pulling punches, he's not making, he's not softening the blow. He is literally just calling it what it is and he said that this is straight sin. And he's, and he's saying this in James chapter two, this raises very serious concerns for me about you and your spiritual walk. It, it raises concerns for me about the church. And as he looks at that, we're going to see what those concerns are. So James chapter 2, verse 14. We're just going to read the first verse. We're gonna, remember, we're trying to find out what's James' big concern about this favoritism in the church. James chapter 2, verse 14 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? He, James asked this question I don't, I don't really like, but here's what he's driving at. He's, he's saying, listen, I, I'm seeing these people in my church who seem to have faith. There were thousands of them that got saved at Pentecost and thousands more that got saved another day in the temple and thousands more that got saved as they invited their friends and neighbors and co-workers to their house for dinner and studying of the word. Thousands and thousands and thousands placed their trust in Jesus and got baptized. Thousands of them are scattered all over the place because they endured persecution. And I need you to think about that. They are scattered because of persecution and James is looking at these people saying, I see a problem here. 
Here's the question that's going on in my head. I've got all these people who are good Jewish boys and girls that have grown up to be really good Jewish boys and girls that have placed their trust in the Messiah and something seems off. The thing that seems off is when I, show, I see you showing favoritism to the rich and despising the poor, it raises a question for me about your faith. And his question is this. Can you have a faith that does not produce works? If you have that type of faith, the type of faith that doesn't actually produce works in your life, is that saving faith? Is, is that what it looks like to be saved? This question makes me uncomfortable because I don't, want to, I don't want us to get derailed here. So before we jump into what this means, I need to make sure we have a full understanding of what the New Testament says for how a person gets saved. If, if you don't understand how the Bible says we get saved, this, these verses will spin you off into a little, uh, I don't know, it's gonna, it'll, it'll just get you off. You'll, you'll miss the point of this passage. Let me give you just a few verses, even though I can give you a lot more, about how the New Testament says we get saved. Just bear with me. You need to know this as we jump into these verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, says this. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So what does that verse say? How does that verse say that we're saved? By what? Say it again. By what? By faith, apart from works. We're saved by faith, not by works. That's Paul saying. I don't know if Paul and James are in a fight, but I don't think so. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So here's what it's saying. If you confess that he's Lord, you actually believe that he came back from the dead, what does it say there? You will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, says this, for by grace, by kindness, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You didn't do this. It is the gift of God, verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Here's the clear teaching of the entire New Testament. You and I and every single person who is saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That, that is it. The way that you and I are saved is not by being good, not by getting baptized, not by tons of effort not by being Baptist, not by having right doctrine. You and I are saved by believing and placing our trust in the person and work of Jesus. And that is it. There's nothing else. You're not always saved. There's a moment in your life that you place your trust in Jesus and his work on the cross. There's a moment that you may grow into it, but you, you and I get saved not by being really good, but by Jesus being really good, by his faithfulness and his kindness. And it's by trust that he will do exactly what he said. So, so when we come over to James, and in James chapter 2, when he's saying, man, well, what am I supposed to do with a faith that does not have works? Let me tell you what I believe. James is not talking about a different gospel. I believe that James believes the same exact gospel that Paul was talking about in Romans and Ephesians. I think it's the same gospel 
But James is coming at, at it from a different perspective. While Paul is saying, this is how you get saved, James is on the other side, and he's looking back at this group of people, and he's saying, man, there's something weird here. Like, this gospel is supposed to be powerful and strong. Like, Jesus talked about a, a river coming out of us. He talked about being born or made alive again. And I, I'm seeing these people who are very good and very religious and very devout and very clean. I'm seeing what looks like faith, but I'm not seeing the works that should be happening as a result of faith. What am I supposed to do with that faith? I mean, is that, is that what real saving faith looks like? That's the question that James is asking. James is not asking how you get saved. James is asking what should being saved look like afterwards? That, that's the question that James is driving at here. And let me just tell you, when he sees favoritism in the church... He doesn't have a small concern about that. It is literally a stage five fire alarm going off. I don't even know if that's what fire alarms are, but it's the biggest one you can do. He's saying, I got major issues here. You hate poor people. Well, is that the kind of faith that saves? That's the question that James is driving at. Now, let me remind you some of the concerns that James has said about this church so far. End of James chapter 1. There's four main problems at the end of James chapter 1 that he's throwing down on. Number one, they did not do the word. They loved to listen to the word. They may have loved to read the word. But their problem was they were not being doers of the word. Y'all remember that conversation? They loved to talk about it, loved to hear a sermon, didn't want to do it. Number two, his second concern, they weren't controlling their tongues. That's what he said in James and chapter 1 that, Pure religion is that you're able to control your tongue. If you don't control your tongue, you're lying to yourself. Don't like that one. Number three, they didn't care for orphans and widows. They didn't care about the needy. Number four, they were not keeping themselves unstained from the world. Those were his four concerns at the end of James chapter 1 that he set up before he jumped into James chapter 2 in favoritism. His four concerns, these are all connected. They didn't do the word. They didn't control their tongue. They didn't care for the poor and the helpless and, and the needy, and they didn't uh, keep themselves unstained from the world. So, so here's what I want you to do for a moment. I, I really want us to do this. I want you to get out a piece of paper and a pen. You can get your bulletin. It's got a spot for sermon notes. I'm asking everyone to do that right now. We're doing a pop quiz. If you don't have a paper and pen, you can do it on your phone. Do the notes thing. Do something. I'm going to give you a minute to get something. I should have had paper out for us for this, but I figured you got your bulletin. I'll even let you talk. You can cheat on this one if you want. You can talk to your spouse and figure out the answer to these questions I'm going to ask them. Are you ready for this pop quiz? Okay, no and yes. We're going to wait again. Keep working on it. I'm only going to give you a few seconds, class. If you can't get this together, I mean, at some point, come on. All right, here we go. You got your phones, you got your paper, you got your pen. Question number one. In the last month, how many times did you respond to the word or a sermon with an act of obedience? List at least one thing you did in response to the word. I'll give you a second to write that down. So there's a number and then say one thing you did. In the last month, how many times did you respond to the word, either your private time or to a sermon, with an act of obedience? 
tell me what you did. By the way, you're not going to turn it in, so nobody freak out. I should have you put your name on and turn it in in class. We'll put a grade and post it online in church website later on. Question number two. In the last month, how did you do it controlling your tongue? Facebook and Twitter count. That's, we'll go tongue or thumb. I don't care which one. How did you do in the last month? I want you to evaluate on a scale of, we'll do zero to 100, since many of you are teachers. We'll grade yourself. 90 to 100 is an A. Grade yourself on how you did at controlling your tongue in the last month. Tongue or thumb. I don't care which one. Do both. How'd you do? Question three. I'm only doing four in case you're afraid there's like a hundred of these. Question three. In the last month, what is one way you cared for someone who was hurting, needy, or vulnerable? In the last month, what is one way you care for someone who is hurting, needy, or vulnerable? Question four. In the last month, what's one sin that you did battle with in your life? In the last month, What's one sin that you did battle with in your life? All right, put your pens and pencils down. The quiz is over. Time is up. Actually, you can take this test later on if you want. I don't, I don't care. Let me, let me tell you what I just did in case you didn't notice. I took the four concerns that James laid out at the end of chapter one and chapter two, and I'm asking you to take a moment of self-reflection to actually evaluate the things that James is calling us to. The, the thing that the gospel is supposed to be doing in our life. And let me just be honest, you can grade your quiz right now. If in answering these questions, your answer number one was, I wasn't moved to any action because of the word. Or if your answer to number two was, I just... I blasted people, or I gossiped, or whatever it is. Question number three, I didn't care for a single person that was needy or poor or vulnerable. Question number four, I can't think of a sin I've struggled with at all in the last month. It didn't even concern me. Listen, then, then I'm going to say, based on James chapter 1 and James chapter 2, man, may, maybe... We should be really concerned about our answers to those questions. Maybe, ju just maybe, the question that James is asking about actionless faith is one that we should be asking ourselves. I think we can let ourselves off the hook really easy for that. And these questions have really serious implications for us today. Can we just be honest? They have implications. I mean, here's what this could mean for us. You could be a really good Baptist. Like you're a church person through and through. You're a churchman or a churchwoman. And you've never done anything about your faith. What does that mean? 
what does that mean if your faith only equals church attendance? Does it mean it's possibly a good Baptist with good doctrine and not have saving faith? Let me, let me say it in a way we would understand. And not really be saved? Okay, now I'm nervous. <laughs> what does that mean for our kids and grandkids? Can we be honest? What does it mean for our kids that pray some prayer and then, man, they are gone? I mean, it's not just like they're having a moment of struggling. They are gone, gone, and they want nothing to do with the faith. Or the Savior, or the Word. They want nothing to do with it. What does that mean? Is it, is it possible that our kids and grandkids could pray a prayer when they were five and not be saved? What does this mean about pastors, church leaders, ministry leaders, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, Christian school teachers, and Christian administrators who do ministry things for their job? What does it mean if these people's hearts are cold and sterile and mechanical and maybe even loveless? Could, could you be a ministry leader or a pastor? Could you make all that sacrifice and not have real saving faith? I think you know what James says to that. The answer is yes. The answer is saving faith, real faith that places its trust in Jesus will produce some type of fruit. When you step on that scale, you look at that number. It might not feel too good, but it may be the exact truth that we need. You see what else James says here, because some of you are probably feeling pretty hopeless right now. Maybe angry, I'm not sure. Look at what James says about this faith that doesn't produce works. He gives this example in James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Really nice talk. Flowery, very Christian-y talk without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I don't like the word dead. I prefer the word weak. Maybe limping. He doesn't use weak or limping. He says dead. His illustration is this. Man, if we were a church that decided to start a ministry to the poor and the homeless, and I said, we got this great plan for ministry to the poor and the homeless. We're going to open our doors for ministry on Monday from pick a time, three to four. I don't know. And listen, we're, we're going to give you kind words and prayer. We're not going to give you any food. We're not going to give you any clothes. We're not going to give you any hope, help. We're just going to say, hey, come on in. Hey, you're a good person. Man, I hope you know, you're going to have a good day. I'm just going to pray for you. Have a great day. I, I hope you find some way to feed yourself today. That would be awesome. See you next Monday. That's the dumbest homeless ministry I've ever heard of in my entire life. I, I'm just telling you, that's just straight stupid. 
If I'm showing up and I am literally starving to death, I don't have food to put on the table today or tomorrow or the day after for me or my kids, and I show up to this homeless ministry, this ministry to people who are poor, and I'm like, listen, I, I, got, no I got no food. I got nothing. And you're like, oh, man, that's tough. Man, I hope you find some food. Let me pray for you. See ya. <laughs> right? I'm not coming back next Monday. That's a useless homeless ministry. It's useless to me. James' illustration is the same way that you would have some type of ministry to the poor that didn't actually help the poor, that's just as useless as having some type of faith that doesn't actually produce works. It's useless. Now, internally, some of you should be arguing with me right now. You should be saying, maybe you're not. I know I have faith. You can't see faith in me. You think you are to judge me whether or not I have faith. How would you know? You can't know if I have faith. Actually, didn't, didn't Jesus say something about not judging? I mean, faith is a pretty private thing. feel pretty judgy in here right now. Maybe you should worry about that command about judging faith before you get all judgy about my faith, just because I don't practice it the way you, pastor, want me to practice it. Well, listen, it's almost as if James foresees that exact question. Because look at what he continues to say. Verse 18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Listen, I know some of you are probably feeling all defensive in here right now. Like, you can't see my faith. And he's saying, he says this, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Here's the very first thing that James says in this. He says, your works demonstrate your faith. I want, I want you to hear that again. Your works demonstrate your faith. He's saying, listen, you, you, at some point, you got to prove that you have real faith, and you cannot prove it apart from works. Real faith will create works in you that are the fruit of that faith. That, that is what real faith will do. It will produce the fruit of works. Your works demonstrate your faith. They prove that your faith is really there. And James is going to give three examples of that. Look at verse 19. He's got, I've got an example of someone that has faith if that works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. That, he's talking about this orthodox doctrine that there is one God. This is the essence of the Jewish faith. He's saying, listen, I'm going to hit you right where your, your doctrine is the purest. You believe that God is one. It's awesome. You do well. This is fantastic. Even the demons believe that. They're even scared about it. They shudder. I mean, think about this. The demons believe that God is big and huge and strong and in control. They believe there is one and only one God. They believe he will come back and judge the earth and them. They believe that he's good and gracious and merciful and loving. They believe he's strong and omnipotent. They have really good doctrine about God. How's that going to go for them? He's saying, listen, if you have a faith that doesn't produce works, that's the, that's the same type of faith that the demons have. They've seen God. They've seen Jesus. 
They've seen the crucifixion. They saw the resurrection. They know what the Bible says. But that faith didn't produce any change based on those realities. None. And there's a qu one clarification I want to make. James is not saying that the presence of works guarantees that you have faith. Let me say that again. He is not saying that just because you have works, that means you've got faith. That's not what James is saying at all. He's saying the absence of works means there is an absence of real saving faith. There's a difference there. Listen, let me say it this way. Demons have faith without works. Pharisees have works without faith. But followers of Jesus have faith that produces works. Let me say that again. Demons have faith without works. Pharisees have works without faith. But followers of Jesus have a faith that produces works. And listen, I don't know how else to say that. If I'd say anything less than that, that is not what the Bible teaches. And it may make you feel really good about yourself. But that is clearly, I believe, the teaching of what James is doing. He's going to give another example. Not just the demons. Let me show you what he says about Abraham here in verse 20. He says this, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Boy, he's getting really aggressive here. Let me say it a little nicer. You want to be shown, knuckleheads, that faith apart from works is useless? I don't know why I feel better about knuckleheads and foolish, but... He's still getting aggressive. I mean, I, he's got to make sure the people understand this. Their eternal souls are at stake here. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? I mean, just hit Paul. Let me retell you that story. Here's this story. Abraham, listen, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want to give you a land. Go. And so Abraham packs up, believes God, takes his wife and kids, leaves all his family, everything he knows, goes to a land. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land. He says, Abraham, I want to give you tons of descendants. I'm just going to blow your brain how many descendants you're going to have. More than the sand on the sea, more than the stars in the heaven. And I'm going to use those descendants to bless the socks off of everyone on earth. I'm, Abraham, I'm about to bless you like crazy. Here's the problem. This promise of tons of descendants, Abraham had zero, zilcho kids at that point. None. None percent. And roughly in his 80s. Uh, try to take things in his own hands, has a son. But that's not the son that God promised. When Abraham was 90, God promises him a son. And he has that son at 90. I mean, this is outlandish. At 90. That would, listen, I'm going to tell you, 90-year-olds in the church, if you have a baby, I will definitely announce that from the pulpit. I'm just telling you, that is crazy. Like, this is insane. 90 years old, him and Sarah having a baby. And listen, the Bible says that he believed that God was going to give him a child, and God counted that as righteousness. That's what the Bible says. Abraham believed, and God said, that dude right there, he believes. I count that as him being right. But then something happened, maybe 10, 15, 18, 20 years later. After faith, something happened. God shows up to Abraham and says, he says here's what I want, that only kid you've got. Now, raise all sorts of concerns for him. I want to take that kid, go up to the mountain I'm going to show you. I want you to sacrifice him as an offering to me. No explanation. No, just go do it. And Abraham gets up the next morning, loads up his son and everything, and goes up to that mountain. And the Bible says that Abraham was raising his arm with the knife. God stopped him, and he said this in Genesis 22. 
Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Let me tell you what God just said. God just said he saw Abraham's faith in action. He saw Abraham's faith produce the works of saying, this son is yours and I'm trusting you, even to the point of real action of sacrificing his son. And James is saying, listen, yeah, Abraham was saved by faith, but that faith produced works. That faith that was there became evident when the fruit popped out of the tree of faith and he took his son up to that mountain to sacrifice him. Look at what else he says here in verse 22. You see that his faith, look how it says here, his faith was active along with his works. It says that his faith was completed by his works. Here's how I'm understanding that. That Abraham's faith worked itself out. It was not private and internal. It worked itself out into all of his life. It produced works in him. And I want you to hear this. It took years for that fruit to show up. So if you're sitting here going, well, listen, I'm expecting this much fruit, and it's been three weeks and nothing. Like, listen, he's saying, listen, this is like a tree. It takes years for the fruit to show up. That's the measuring stick that God is doing. He's not looking at just one moment. He's looking over an entire lifetime of faith, of faith that is producing works, of faith that is producing works, faith here that produces works over here for the entire Life As they live their entire life, that faith is growing, and so are the works. The works don't save. The faith saves, but that faith that saves produces a work in you that is visible and evident and strong and powerful. And it may be small at first, but it keeps showing up fruit after fruit after fruit as a result of faith, not legalism, not self-effort. Not guilt, there's this fruit that was being produced because of faith in Jesus over and over and over and over again. His other example is verse 25. He says, listen, the demons believe, but that doesn't produce works. Abraham believed and it produced this work. And then in verse 25, he gives the example of Rahab. It's his third example. Rahab, a woman who lived a pagan life, a woman who was a prostitute. Everything about her life screamed, that woman doesn't have faith. But there was a fruit that was there. In case you think it has to be 100% perfect, listen to the fruit of this woman that's a prostitute. Let's read verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. And look at these works. When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. If you don't know that story, here's Rahab. Israel's coming into the promised land. She's a prostitute in this city. And they send spies to Jericho. And Rahab hides, hides the spies. And I want you to hear her, her expression of faith when she hid the spies. I want you to hear what faith sounded like. And remember what it looked like when she expressed it by letting these guys get away. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, says this. Before the men lay down, she'd already hid them. And she was going to let them go out a different way the next day. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, Listen to this faith. I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know it. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10. For we heard, she, she heard about this, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt. I heard about the Red Sea thing in Egypt. 
Rahab saying, I heard it. I know that you've got the land because I heard what he did back there. This woman that was a pagan prostitute heard about this and said, he's got the whole, he's given it all to them. If he's going to do that to the Egyptians, we're next. And he gets to have all of it. He talks about other victories they had. Verse 11 and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And look at her understanding of this. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's faith. Then the action was this. She hid the spies, sent them out, and said, can I be a part? Can, can me and my family be a part of Israel? Somehow this woman connected the fact that God killed the Egyptians and was going to destroy give the land of the Israelites, that he was a kind and gracious God that all she had to do was say, listen, let me be a part. And he said, yes, you're a part. And she gets to be the great-great-grandmother of Ruth and the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of David and the great-great-great, I don't know how many greats it is, great-great-grandmother of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That woman had faith, not a perfect life. She had faith that led to real action. Listen, his main point is this. It's summarized in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's dead. So here's the deal. If you and I do not have real works from our faith, then our faith is dead. I have no sugarcoating for that. I have no way to make you feel better about it. And I'm not going to. Because you and God need to do business. You need to ask yourself this question. Do, do I have a real saving faith that's really producing works in me? Or do I have some type of dead, fruitless faith? I can't answer it for you. Let me ask you to take some time and look back over the course of your life. I, I know my test wasn't fair because it was only for four weeks. But let me ask some things. Are you more of a worshiper of God now than you were five years ago? Or are you more bored with God now than you were five years ago? Are, are you hungrier for the word now? more than you were five years ago? Are you practically loving more people now than you were five years ago? Just think about the acts of love and service and community you experienced before COVID. Has it even come back yet? Listen, is, is God producing love for me and people? Is there more love joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gracious, or gentleness. Oh, man, I tried to quote it. And every time I do this, I get the fruit of the Spirit wrong. Is there more fruit of the Spirit in me? More. Am I learning more and more ways to serve the poor and the weak and the needy? Am I in deeper community now than I was? I, listen, church, these are the fruits of the work of God in our midst. It's love. It's fighting sin. It's not perfection. 
My mouth is more guarded now than it was five years. My heart is more loving. My actions are more loving. I'm in deeper community. I'm more caring for the poor. I'm more generous. I'm more engaged in mission, not less. And there is something deeply wrong with the form of Christianity that the highest moments of obedience are three weeks after we place our trust in Jesus and then it tapers off from there as if that's normal or acceptable. That is not saving faith. Now I want to, be, I want to warn you, be careful you don't take this verse and translate it into works that are not connected to faith. You go out and say, I'm going to manufacture works and I'm going to manufacture feelings and I'm going to manufacture faith and a new heart. You can't do it. This is a fruit that's supposed to be coming out of trust in Jesus. It is supposed to flow from the inside out. Do not do this on your own effort by your own power. That is not what James is calling us to. That's what Pharisees call us to. It's a heart that's changed and renewed by the gospel. So here's my prayer for us. My prayer for us is that we be a people that have real faith in Jesus that would actually produce works in us. Now, even if I teach this, I have a concern for some of you. Some of you, you, you have a real faith, but it feels like you're gasping for air so much. What I don't want to do is take that fledgling faith and just stomp it out. That's not what I'm trying to do, but I'm trying to say there's supposed to be more. I'm concerned that the stereotypical Baptist church people know about Jesus and we sit in our pews. We sit there unmoved to action week after week after week that turns into months, that turns into years, that turns into decades, that turns into a life that will end and you'll stand before Jesus with a faith that didn't do any works. And it's not going to hold up. That's not the real thing. Church, I'm not asking you to wear yourself out with legalistic, guilt-ridden activity. I'm asking us to run hard after Jesus with hearts that burn for him and seek to follow him and obey him in whatever he would call us to. Hearts that are quick to repent and quick to love. Hearts that are moved to action by faith in Jesus. And there is a difference. So here's the question. Have you encountered Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection in such a way that you have a faith that produces works? Or have you encountered him some other way? When James saw people that were churchy, but it didn't produce works, he said, I'm not sure that's the real thing. So I want you to do business with God this morning. Do you have real, active, saving faith or not? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want to give you a moment right there in your seat to do business with God. I'm not going to drag this out. Right there in the quietness, I just want you to simply do business with God. Is your faith active? Has it produced works in you?
some of you, you, you're hearing that question and you know God is chasing you down right now and he's working in your heart. He's saying, you don't have real faith. Listen, I want to encourage you right in your seat. He is quick to forgive. He is merciful and kind. All you have to do is repent and say, I want you and only you. I'm asking you to work in my heart. I believe that you died on the cross and that you came back to life. I want you to be my king and God. That's it. Some of you are confused by this. It scared you. Maybe it's not that you don't have saving faith. Maybe you just, your faith has been floundering and somehow over the years, especially through COVID, we learned to have faith that wasn't moving and wasn't active. You have saving faith, but the action and the fruit has been small. I want to ask you to pray and ask Jesus to change that. And we'd actually commit to stepping out in obedience by faith to do what he's called you to do. Others of you here, as you look back, it may be nervous to say it, but you actually see him working in you. You, you look back at the last several years and you see, man, I do have more love and I do have more worship and I do have more community. He's actually working in me. Would you just take a moment and praise him for that? For a God that didn't just say, I'm going to save you and you better get to work. He said, man, I'm going to change you and he's working and he's causing deeper love. Would you worship him for being a God that's finishing the work that he started in you. I just want you to know, if you're confused or you're struggling, I don't want this to cause unnecessary fear in you, but me and the pastors, we will be available at the end of the service or whenever you need in the coming weeks to talk through whatever God's doing in your life. Don't, don't ignore it. But if you need to speak more, we would love to do that with you. Feel free to come and find us. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you need to talk with us, we'll be available. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray, I pray for us. I pray for the men, women, and children in this room right now. God, I pray you would make it clear that you would affirm those who have saving faith that is actually producing works. God, I pray you'd be gracious and gentle and kind and powerful in that reaffirmation of faith. And God, I'm, I'm praying that we would see more and more and more fruit produced by you, not by us, by you at work in us. God, pray for those whose faith is struggling, that they think they see fruit, but it's small and it's frail. God, I'm praying you would be a good and strong and caring gardener that would tend that fruit and guard their heart from false doubts. God, I'm praying there would be people here whose weak faith would be strengthened. And God, I'm praying you would work in a powerful way. They would look back a year from now and see you producing fruit that blows their mind. And I, I pray for those whose, weak, whose faith feels frail. God, for, for those in here who have been wrapped up in a faith that didn't work. God, I'm asking that you would humble us. God, I'm praying we would repent of non-saving faith that doesn't work, of actionless Christianity. God, we repent of that. I, God, I pray you'd do a gracious work where they place their trust in you for real. 
God, we trust you with our hearts, and I trust you to work in our hearts with wisdom and clarity in a way that I cannot. Be kind to us, God, and all that. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.